0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: The mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is concerned, and I think rightly so, because two projects that are one very large, one significant project in the city of Hamilton. One was the, remember how they're going to have the big uh, Hamilton sign out front of City Hall? That's somehow been delayed a bit. But the other one, the LRT, shockingly delayed, it seems. Well, not delayed necessarily, but you'll recall that after the whole. LRT discussion, after the fight, after the debates, after everyone finally came around to saying, okay, we'll do this. Some city councilors decided then, hey, now that we've decided we're going to go ahead with this, and now that it's been agreed upon, and now that we've gone to the province and said, yes, we'd like this, go ahead and do it. You'll recall that some of them then said, oh, by the way, um, yeah, I know that you said that you were going to have Metrolinx design it, build it operate it, maintain it, all those kind of things. But we'd really like it if the HSR people, our people were to run the thing. And if you recall at the time, there were an awful lot of people saying, well, hold on a second. Uh, This has the potential to really gum things up because, I mean, they're going to have to take some time to look at this and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And I can't believe... That anyone, and it's not just the mayor, because council, many members of council apparently are, are aware of this, but it's, and concerned about it. If you go to the province, they're, they're upset that they haven't got an answer yet, so they can't begin doing some work and stuff on it. If you come up with an agreement, and then all of a sudden throw a bit of a wrench into the agreement. Keeping in mind that we are not the province of Ontario's only concern. There are other cities within the province of Ontario. I don't know if if people here, I'm talking about council sometimes, if they realize that Kathleen Wynne and her band of liberal MPPs are not sitting there just thinking about Hamilton. They've got other things going on too. When you have something that gets lined up and then you say, go ahead and do it. And then you decide, oh, by the way, let's do it completely differently. We don't like what you were going to offer us. We would like you to completely change how that's going to be done. How can we possibly be surprised that now things are slowing down and bogging down and getting more complicated and we're not getting any answers from the province? How how did we not say, did people not say at the time that this was raised Hold on a second. I know that at least two councillors did. I know that Aiden Johnson, Ward One councillor, and I know that Lloyd Ferguson, Ancaster Ward Twelve councillor, both were concerned that we don't want to complicate this. We don't. It, we've now voted for the LRT. Let's not make this more complicated than it is. Let's not give the province opportunities to slow things down. Let's 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 plow ahead with this thing. And while I understand, I do, while I understand that you would want to have your people, your HSR employees who, interestingly and probably not unrelatedly, uh, HSR employees who are voters in the city of Hamilton. So if you're a city councillor, of course you want to look like you are backing HSR jobs and creating HSR job security and bringing more money into the HSR system. Of course you do. But it's all, it, it, it. we knew this had the potential to slow down. T- I can't believe anybody's surprised by this. I can't believe anybody at the city is surprised that when you decide you're going to change things up at the last minute, that things wouldn't move as smoothly as you would expect. It's a, um, 11 to 2 was the vote to see if the province would would allow the HSR to run it after it had been agreed that it was going to be Metro doing all this kind of stuff. you don't think that maybe maybe the province is looking at this saying wait a second now if we've already told Metrolinx we're going to be able to they're going to be able to operate the whole why do they just want to build it and then get out of the way? They want to manage it they want to run it they want to ha- so it, you know I understand how you want to have your people do it, but come on. This is, this is so predictable that when you go back to the province with a major, major change to what you had decided you were going to do, that it's going to delay it. But what I want to know, and we've got a few minutes here, and I'd love to have you in. There's a couple things on this one. First of all. Are you, I mean, first of all, is anybody out there surprised by this? Is there anybody who didn't predict that as soon as they decided, as soon as council decided they wanted to change this, that this was going to cause a delay? But the second part is, and this is the more interesting thing to me, there was a tremendous level of LRT fatigue a little while ago. When we would talk about it on the show, I tried not to more days than not because there was a tremendous LRT fatigue on the show. Some people would be happy to chat about it all day long, every day, but most people were like, yeah, all right, you know what? Thankfully, this one is now decided. Let's uh, let's leave this one alone now. Has that changed for you? If there were changes, if there were discussions, if the LRT was going to be back as a main point of discussion, are you ready to begin re-emerging from your shell from your protective cocoon of non-LRT-ness? Are you prepared to step back into this, or are you saying, oh, please, no. Oh, for heaven's sakes, no. Let the LRT either be built or not built or whatever, but please let's not have another LRT debate. By, by any imagination, let's, new, let's not bring up the LRT thing again and create a new discussion around that. Which side are you on? Are you, Are you engaged in the LRT still? Or would you never like to hear the letters LRT again until the line opens? Assuming it does. Assuming it does. I'll tell you, I, I'm i not saying this is going to happen. But in the back of my mind, I still, I still believe, I still think somehow that if nothing has been done on the LRT by the time the next provincial election rolls around, And another party wins. There is still a little niggling thing in the back of my head that says every single time a new party, whether it's provincial, whether it's federal, gets into power, the first thing they always do is come out shortly after they've taken power and say, oh, oh, we've taken a look at the books. And whatever the party was in power before us, Oh boy, did they ever underestimate and undersell how bad the shape is that the financial books are in. Oh, this country, this province, whatever it is, is in dire straits. We are so much in debt. You know that's going to be the case if the Trudeau liberals lose in a federal election because they have they've made a point of running deficits. They haven't hidden that. They've made that part of their campaign platform and they've gone above and beyond as far as building a deficit. You know that if some other party gets in there, they are going to say, oh man, we we need to cut, cut, cut because this this country is deep in debt and sliding deeper in every second. You also know that if the Tories or the NDP were to get into power in Ontario... If it was the Tories, they're going to say that exact same thing. Oh, the the books are in terrible shape here in Ontario. Kathleen Wynne has left us bankrupt. We are so far behind. The NDP will probably say the same thing. The difference is the Conservatives would probably say, so we have to cut a lot of stuff. The NDP will say, which means we're going to be even further in debt. But if the Conservatives were to win, this is the little thing in the back of my brain. I still have this little niggling bit of doubt that says, if they were to get in, they are going to look at those books. They are going to look at the finances. They're going to look at the amount of money Ontario owes and how much money is going out all the time and may say, nothing's been done on this yet. No work has been done on this yet. We, we're we going to have to relook at this. We're going to have to take a, we're going to have to revisit the LRT. That may not happen because they've said they're not going to, but what political party has ever followed every promise that they've ever made? Zero exactly zero. So if you are a huge backer of the LRT, if the city of Hamilton really is serious about its LRT aspirations, which it seems to be, I really believe they need to have some kind of thing going on this thing before the next election. I mean, some, some sort of significant thing going on this. Because even if you say, well, you know, there's some contracts and stuff, and there's penalty clauses. Okay, so the province has to pay $50 million to get out of a a contract, let's say, whatever it was. Well, that's a lot less money than a billion dollars. I think if you're an LRT supporter, you want this thing starting to be worked on as soon as possible, as soon as possible, just to eliminate any possibility that another party gets into power and then decides they can't afford it anymore. And you know what? When the city council comes up with new ways, inadvertently but predictably, comes up with new ways to delay this and slow it down, man, are they ever shooting themselves in the foot potentially? We'll see, but... And I don't know, maybe the, maybe the Tories come in and they say, no, let's double it. Let's run the LRT from Dundas to Stony Creek on King and on Main Street. Let's have dueling LRTs. Let's have one going up and down the hill. Plus, we're going to have gondolas. Let's make, we're going to have so much public transit that everybody gets their own bus. I doubt it. It is kind of important, I would think, if you are a supporter of the LRT, that this thing gets started as fast as possible. Because otherwise, uh, who knows? Who knows what goes on after the next election? None of us do. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's always a great event this time of year here in the city because every year at this time they introduce the class of whatever year it is for the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. And that is a big deal, and I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Because some of you are going to say, okay, well, you know what? They don't have an actual building for the Hamilton Sports Hall. That's true. And it is, some will say, well, it's just for the city. What about people who go into their own Sports Hall of Fame? Yeah, that's a big deal too. But why the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, in my mind, for my money, is a big, big deal is because there's a lot of people in this city who have done amazing things here, but also further afield. Sometimes in the province, sometimes in the country, sometimes internationally that can get forgotten about. They can, they can slip through the cracks. One of those examples was today, a guy named Jeremy Kovac. Many people around here would not know him, but you go to other places in the world. He was a champion wakeboarder. Now we don't have a huge wakeboarding tradition here, but you go around different places in the States, especially and around the world. He was an enormous star We don't know him though. This hall of fame, I believe is great because it allows for people who have done amazing things in the world of sports to be remembered in their hometown and honored in their hometown. Now, one of the people who went into the hall of fame today, now he is not in that situation like Jeremy Kovac, where people didn't know who he was. Everybody knew who this guy was. And I thought he would have been in the hall of fame before now, but I'm thankful they finally got around to doing it. Rick Natrus, a hall of now Hall of Fame Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame defenseman, well, Stanley Cup it, champion. Eh? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Rick?
0: Well, it does. It does. It's uh, you know, kid from Afton Avenue playing at Eastwood Park. I guess if I don't uh, personify, you never know. To kids everywhere, then you never know, right? So, I think it's been a. It's still hard to hard to grasp, you know. Uh, does it matter to get, you?
1: Does I mean, when I talk to people about going into this uh, Hall of Fame, and for you, does it really matter that you're in the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame? Well, I, I think, you know what, Scott, I have
0: to say yes, but not personally. I think yes for my mama. If she was around, it would have been something that she would be, you know, proud of. And that's something that I'd strive for most of my life is to make her proud. And I think this is something that... Uh, for me personally, it's a great honor, but it feels weird like i you know I just try to do my best and work hard and be a good person, and you know not let people mistake kindness for weakness and uh you know and here i am fifty five years old and usually, I thought you had to be dead to get in there so <laughs> at the end of the day uh we're lucky I'm not dead, and I'm very
1: honored. You're, uh, you grew up with a... She was a single mother, right? Your mother was a single mother? Yes,
0: I had a stepfather for a few years, but he was part of my life from, you know, that 10-year-old uh, on, so I never saw him. Uh, actually, he passed away the day before... Uh, well, the day before I won the Calder Cup in, in 85, so I hadn't seen him for 15 years. But uh, my mom was uh, a driving force. A very uh, She was uneducated, and she was like a war bride pretty much through the Depression and whatnot, and... Uh, she came to Hamilton when my father passed, and and uh, she became a Hamiltonian, and she believed in hard work, and because she didn't have the education, she did things that uh, most men couldn't do, and she was just a small lady, but uh, she was tough. And as I said today, uh, you know, the the thought I always had in my mind is, uh, she she said to me, if you go, if I can go to scrub pizza ovens at four in the morning to make extra money to pay for hockey, you can at least go to the rink and have fun and work hard. So. And I carry that with me to today. So I think uh, she was inspirational for a lady who had no education. She certainly was smart.
1: How did a, Okay, so how did someone who had to work a couple jobs and, and was uh, you know back at that time, it's not that long ago, you're not that old, Rick, but I mean a single no. mother who was working, how did she get you into hockey? How did you even get to play? Because it cost money.
0: Well, wow, that's the thing. I've got these books, and I, we saw some of them that she did uh, binders from scrapbooks from when I started at Eastwood to the day I finished in Philadelphia. And she had the registration costs, and I know people laugh, but they went from fifty dollars to sixty-two or seventy-one or something, it went up twenty-one bucks. And I think there was a riot almost back then with the parents, but. You know, I remember my mom. The only time I really understood how much she made, she made 125 bucks a week at her, at you know, at her finest. And uh, I don't know she could stretch a twenty dollar bill and it seemed like she always had money for hockey for me, and, uh, you know, we didn't have a car for the longest time. She got a car and, you know, went on a hot for that, a uh, 63 Rambler. This is in the mid-70s. Everybody's got to understand that. So, had a big bus wheel on it, and it, it got me around. It's funny, I was 16, and she said, why don't you get your license and you can drive the car? And I said, no, thanks, mom, I'll wait. So, you know what I mean? I wasn't so eager to buy a Ram, uh, to drive a Rambler, but she just found ways, and... You know, we didn't have the best sticks, and I didn't. Have, I had second skates from Kineskis or Joe Hagel's, and I had, uh, you know, stuff that protected me most definitely, but maybe wasn't brand new. And I didn't know any better, and I didn't care. It wasn't about the equipment. And I think, I hate to preach and think I'm smart, but at the end of the day, I think it's too much about that now, rather than what the effort goes in and the excitement or the enthusiasm to be at the rink or at the sporting event whatever that sport is for these young kids and, and i just think my mom was always keen on set, you know setting an example it might not be the best but it's yours take care of it and I, i've carried that uh, attitude maybe to a little high degree my kids and my wife would argue with that but uh, <laughs> i think at the end of the day uh, she was a lady that uh, was determined to give me an opportunity whatever it took and go on the hawk if she had to and my sister sherry was a huge uh, you know, they, she, they put their lives on hold for me. And, you know, I wasn't, Scott, you got to remember, I didn't play Triple A until Major Bantam. So I wasn't the best player, but my mom always thought I got better every year. And I say if there was ever a participant action trophy back then, I got it because it was called Most Improved, and I pretty much got it every year I
1: played. Do you remember when it dawned on you, though, Rick, that you were actually a pretty good player?
0: Well, you know, Scott, and again, people say, well, you must have knew. You know, you went into junior. I was drafted in the seventh round, 180-somethings to a major junior. Made the team only because it was, you know, one of the worst teams in the O the previous year. My first year, I got to play lots of injuries on the back end, so I got opportunities to play. You know, in situations that probably I wouldn't normally have had that opportunity. So and people said, Well, you took advantage of them I didn't really think of it. I always thought of competing. And just, you know, as a defense I'm not getting beat. believe me, I got beat a lot when I was younger and then I you know, I carry that into even you know, I hate to say old timers, but alumni hockey I guess we could say. <laughs> and I carry that into it now. It's just, you know, the that's what I did and I just wanted to be better and I got to junior and made a couple all star teams still was a little surprised and I've been surprised like I am today mostly my whole life when it came to hockey you know, the opportunities that it's brought me and and the accolades and the ability to go over to kuwait with can, the canadian military and the commanding general lawson a couple of times i mean this hockey's been my life and it's been made me who i am and that means the team aspect and the opportunities
1: So when I ask about the Hall of Fame, I mean, it really, it sounds like for a lot of the stuff, for a lot of your experiences, Rick, you have not been that guy who always expected that it was going to be there.
0: Well, I think, you know, I've been lucky. I mean, I had a mother that was uh, sports oriented, as I said, in the 60s, which is unheard of. And I have a wife that uh, knew that my passion and my girlfriend from when we were 16 years old, that's become my wife for 34 years, that had a passion for hockey, and she loved hockey. And and then my kids, the same way. My son, Justin, played. Scott, you've met him. My daughter, Christy, never was a hockey player, but she's a huge fan. So hockey's been that bond. We could all, you know, you have, uh, and we've all go through it as a father. You know that, that sometimes... They, we don't seem to understand what they're going through, and they certainly don't understand that we've been through a lot as a parent or as a person. And, but that ho- hockey's always been that common denominator that we could talk about. And I think we've been very fortunate with that uh, because uh, communication is not always the easiest, certainly in today's society, but my, my kids and my wife and my mother and my sisters, it's been that common bond, and it still is. And I'm 50 years into it almost, and, and we still... Have that bond because hockey is who we are, and uh, you know. And I and I finally came to grips with that probably five or six years ago. That there's nothing wrong with that being Rick, the hockey player. I always wanted to be more, and I think you know I just had to look at what I've done and and what people keep telling me, as you have many times, Scott. To thank you for that. That you know I'm, I'm much more than that, but that's who I am. Right.
1: Does it shock you? Does it seem surreal almost? Because I, I was looking at this today. I was I went onto your hockey yeah. DB. It's twenty five yeah. years since you played yeah. a game in the NHL. That that seems yeah. almost unbelievable.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and it's you know what. And I'm I'm, I'm on the board of directors for Leaf Alumni MLSC. I've been for the last four years, uh, involved in quite a bit of a few things. I do some stuff here with St. Uh, Matthew's House, trying to you know give it a little. Well,
1: you still there, Rick?
0: To spend some time with my mother, God rest her, and have my her kids, my kids, know their grandmother. We got that. I got into the Bulldogs when they moved from Cape Breton to Hamilton when they were owned by the Edmonton Oilers. So I stayed, you know, focused. Then I got into radio and NHL Network TV. So I, you know, that again, the game has allowed me to stay relevant. I guess is the proper term. And that with that relevance, I've been able to help other people with it and you know easter seals and different groups like that so i get to play a lot of hockey i get to talk a lot of business with uh you know leaders from across canada as well as the canadian military and government and the the game is just you know scott it's been good to me and i've been in so many ways and i try to say this to kids i mean we i go through communities my grandson is uh half woodland cree so i've been traveling with Brian Troche and John Shabbat and Aaron Asham up to remote communities in Alberta, Ontario, Labrador, and, uh, and, uh, the Northwest territories and, and talking to kids. And I guess the biggest message is, you know, sports itself, not just hockey. There's so many more things than just playing pro. Cause we know I was very fortunate and many guys were to play at that level. And, but there's so many things that you can take out of sports being at a, you know, a trainer, a coach, uh, a therapist, uh, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, whatever that might be, it's an opportunity for kids to, uh, you know, change their life if they want to get dedicated and focused.
1: Rick, when I ask about the 25 years, uh, one of the things that stands out, again, before I I went to the Hall of Fame today for the induction, I was watching some old clips of you playing, and a lot of the clips that pop up on YouTube obviously involve the Battle of Alberta because that was... The thing back then. Do you remember those? A
0: lot of people don't understand how tough that's that, uh, that series.
1: Sure well, that's time. what I was gonna ask. Like, do yeah, you think no. of those times fondly, or something else? Because they were they weren't just people talk about wars. They they were brutal. They were really yes. brutal. Do you think of well, those things fondly, or do you go, "Oh man, I I wouldn't have minded if we had a few less of those."
0: Well, I had, uh, you know, the opportunity to play for Montreal as well, which was the best opportunity I could ever ask for. Uh, they turned me into a hockey player. Um, and then we had the Battle of Quebec with Quebec City. So, uh, the, uh, so I mean, at the end of the day, that was tough. Alberta, it's hard to describe. It was, uh, you know, we probably played them 14, 18 times a year. And every game got rougher. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was playoff hockey. It was the pride of Alberta, which was, you know, big back then and still is today because we've got two pretty good teams there now. But I don't think it'll ever, you'll ever see a rivalry like that and how physical. There was different parts of the game. Both teams were, could skate. Uh, both teams could be, play tough. Both teams could check. Both teams could score. Both teams had good goaltending. So you, it was a battle. And, and I like to say, um, and I'm a little biased, but getting all that smite division back then was like winning the Stanley Cup. And I think uh, playing against Edmonton and Gretzky and SCA and all those other guys certainly made me a better hockey player. Uh, sometimes didn't like the situation, but when you won, it was, it was like hmm. winning the Stanley Cup because you were the king of Alberta for at least a couple of days anyway.
1: I know you hate talking about this, but one of the clips that pops up was a famous clip where Mark Messier delivers just a brutal yeah. elbow to your head. Yeah. Years later, when you've yeah. gone through those things, is it yeah. easy to say hi to the guys that you were in on the other side? The guys from Edmonton who yeah. you really hated at that time—does it well, pass as like water under the bridge, or do you—is well, it hard funny. sometimes? Yeah,
0: it's funny because Charlie and Hadi and I, he coaches in Winnipeg, I do a lot of stuff up there. We become friends. I think there's a lot of respect there. You know, Matt, at the time, it's funny. Everybody, I thought. It, you know, and I'll tell everybody I was going to go low and break his leg. You know what I mean? Because it was, uh, we had a few run-ins down the right. So I said, no, nah, go shoulder to shoulder. And at the end of the day, he frigging nailed me with an elbow. I didn't see it. Uh, apparently the refs didn't see it. But, no. Uh, you know, trying to get back to my, and you know, who, and I'll tell you, so I get back to the bench finally by crawling across the boards. My helmet's twisted like 190 degrees to the left. I finally get back to the bench. The trainer's standing there, and all of a sudden, I must wake up. And I say, he's, he's in my way, and I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to help you. I said, why are you helping? He says, to help you off the ice. I said, why do I need help? Like, get out of my way. I'm sitting down, and everybody's asking me if I'm okay. I have no idea what they're talking about. Don't miss a shift. Go out and play. So, at the end of the day, I'm having breakfast the next morning with my kids. This is the playoffs for people that are listening. I believe it was 91, wasn't it? I God? think so. I think, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, I think it was 91, second round. So I get back, my kids are in that age. Justin was seven, my daughter was four. We're having a late breakfast. I'm going to take him to the rink for an optional. They're saying, Justin says to me, Hey, Dad, I didn't think you were going to get up. And I said, What are you talking about? He says, uh, Yeah, I didn't think you were going to get up. And I said, I didn't go down. And my daughter's like four. And she's like, Yes, you did. Dad. So I take him to the rink. I hear all this laughter. We jump in the back room. We had a big screen TV in the locker room where we watched tape. And they are playing this over and over again. And I'm like, holy crap. Jeez, uh, I guess I did go down. My daughter looks up at me and says, see, Dad, I told you. So getting to your question, I think at the end of the day, I've talked to Mess on a couple of occasions. We're not best buddies, but we respect each other. We competed, and it was something that, you know, I certainly wish it didn't happen, but at the end of the day, like Don Sherry says, I'm a tough uh, Hamilton boy, and I got up, and I think that's why everybody knows about it Exactly, so much, because he played it so often, because he felt that uh, not many people would have got up from that, but uh, my mother used to say, Scott, don't stay down, don't embarrass the family, get off the ice no matter what, so I, I kept that in my mind, and uh at the end of the day, it's, you know, bygones be guns. It's like anything else. We competed. You know, I'd certainly I got my licks in with him, and he got a good one in with me and a couple more on other occasions. But at the end of the day, that was then, this is now. And we just did what we had to do to win. And I think that's, you know, why we got where we were. And we had a lot of success, not only as an individual, but as a team that uh, it was about doing what you had to do to win and, and sacrificing your body, maybe not your head, but your body to uh, accomplish that.
1: Rick, i got 30 seconds. i just got to ask you this on a different topic, but about the yep. Hall of Fame today. Yep. Uh, at the, when I was bringing you in, I was talking about how I, I love the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame because people yep. who you may not know a lot about get attention. Mm-hmm. Did you know before you heard about the class you were going in with, did you know much about... Jeremy, or about Cindy Nels or about don Knight, or or do you were you like everyone else, or a lot of people learning about these people because they I were learning about
0: them when I was told I was being inducted with them. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, great accomplishments by all of them. I mean, Mister Jervinsky, we know, you know what I mean, yep. but I didn't know he originally started in in harness. I thought it was uh, he was in construction. And, you know, and then Jeremy, it was like, you look at his resume and you have to wonder why I didn't know more about him. But at the time, he was, you know, it was the X Games pretty much. And he was starting out and no one really understood him. And we were too, I guess, saying it's not a sport. And then it's become such a popular sport. Now you have to respect what he's done. He's, you know, represented Canada, won world championships. And, and, you know, Cindy, I mean, the same thing. And I didn't, you know, it's just, it's amazing. And I say this was it my true heart that it's amazing that people don't understand how many great people came out of here and I don't just mean athletes but great people that have went on and done great things in this world not only for you know local people but uh, others and I think the sports industry is another one here and I call it an industry because that's what it is I think this is something that uh, you know, people should take more notice of in Hamilton because we've had some great athletes and great people coming from this area.
1: Including Rick Natras, and I, I appreciate the time. I'll let you get back to your dinner. I think you're out uh, having a dinner tonight. Rick Natras, thanks for doing this, and congratulations thanks, uh, on the honor today. It. Take care, buddy. Uh, it is a great honor, and it's, it's a great thing that uh, 58, I, I believe the number is 58 individuals and teams now in the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, uh, you can go check out who those people are, HamiltonSportsHallofFame.com if you are so inclined. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: So we have been told forever, I mean forever, that diet is the key to our health. Diet and exercise. If you eat properly, if you eat responsibly, if you don't jam yourself full of fat and sugar and booze and carbohydrates and all those other things, red meat, whatever – Uh, you'll be okay. And you do some exercise. I just watched a movie, in fact, on Netflix on this very topic, not a choice of mine. Family was watching it. So I sat down, it was called What the Health? And it was all about diet and how it impacts on us. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon. The health industry, the diet industry, the food industry um, is not getting any smaller. But the question is, from a new study, could stress have just as much of an impact on your life, on your health, on your body, as your diet. Well, as I say, a new study suggests that possibly it could, particularly in women. Laura Bridgewater uh, is of the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Biology at Brigham Young University. She is the lead author of this study. She joins us now. Dr. Bridgewater, thanks for doing this today.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I really found this an incredibly interesting study and wanted to have you on because if as I understand it, if what you're suggesting uh, is that, and if I, understand, say it, as I, if I understand this correctly, there are physical changes that come with stress, not just physical symptoms, which is kind of how many people have always seen this, that if you're under stress, you show symptoms, but you're saying it actually possibly changes part of what is going on in your body physically.
2: Yep, that's exactly right.
1: To to try and go through this, because it's going to be, uh, there are parts of it that are a little bit complicated. You use the word, and I think we're going to use the word microbiota. Is that how I pronounce it right? Microbiota?
2: That's right. Microbiota. Um, yeah.
1: Microbiota. Could you explain, before we get to it, because it's going to be hard to explain this without that, what is that? What does that mean?
2: We were focused on the gut microbiota, which means all the microbes that live in the gut. And it's already known that those microbes impact, um, metabolic syndrome, okay? And I think most people are familiar with metabolic syndrome. It includes obesity and type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, fatty liver, uh, a lot of those things that we kind of just accept are part of aging, but they're really not. So the gut microbiota was known to have an impact on metabolic syndrome already.
1: And microbes, uh, th- I mean, the thought that I would understand, those are they're living things, but I had always understood those to be... Um, you would have to bring those, you'd have to introduce them into an environment, correct? Is that, is that not true?
2: Um, you know, microbes are part of us. Oh. We, when we're born, we have microbes introduced to us, and they just live with us. We have probably somewhere close to um, 10 times as many bacterial cells that are associated with our body as human cells. So there are lots of microbes all over us and inside us. <clears throat> but in the gut is where the majority of them
1: live. And the reason I ask that is because it's always been the thought that if you are exposed to something, you would get it. But if you eat something, that you would potentially introduce uh, microbes to your body.
2: The microbes are already there. Okay. There are. You certainly can introduce new microbes. You know, if we eat something, you know, we talk about food poisoning. You know, you eat some food that's been left out, you can introduce some new and harmful microbes, but we have so many that are already there, part of us, and they, they colonize our gut, and they live there, they eat what we give them, right, what we eat determines what kind of microbes tend to thrive, and uh, they play an important role in our metabolism.
1: And so if I eat a horrible diet, would the, the microbes are affected because that's giving them that particular food, so different microbes would thrive under a different diet, correct? That's right. Exactly. Which so
2: if you're eating a very unhealthy diet, then certain microbes thrive and other ones will tend to dwindle, decrease their numbers.
1: And why, and maybe this is an obvious question, but why is that impactful then? is I mean, are do we need to have a particular balance in our body of these microbes? So if certain ones are able to grow and flourish, that it just throws off the whole balance of everything?
2: Yeah, some of these microbes do good things for us. They help with digestion. They create vitamins. Um, they... They secrete things that are helpful to us, and then others are harmful. They, their metabolites, things that they just naturally produce, can get into our system and cause inflammation or have other harmful effects. So, different bacteria, some are good and some are bad.
1: Okay, so the the study that was done, um, as I again, as I understand it, and correct me where I go off track here, suggests that while we again go understand that foods can do that to us, most of us have thought that if you have a lot of stress in your life that you could have signs of depression or anxiety or sadness or low energy or something like that. As I understand it, your study is now saying that the microbes in your gut could actually be changed and be affected by stress. So it's actually a physical thing that is happening to us.
2: That's right. That's what we found. The study was done in mice. And we, um, first of all, placed mice on either a healthy diet um, with a lot of fiber in it, or a very high-fat diet. And we just let them eat that for a while, and we looked at what happened in their gut microbiota. And just like you'd expect, if they were on a high-fat diet, the microbes changed. You know, different different ones tended to take, tended to take over and flourish. Um, but the surprising part was when we then put those mice through some stress, uh, chronic, unpredictable, mild stress. So different kinds of Stress, but how how do you stress interior. out a?
1: Ma- how do you stress out a mouse?
2: <laughs> it's kind of funny to imagine, isn't it? Um,
1: Unless it's Mickey, I don't know.
2: Thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing we did was um, change their light cycle, their light dark cycles. So you know that's stressful in humans if we have to work the night shift or we stay up all night studying. Um, so we, we gave them that kind of stress. Um, we introduced predator smells into their room um, and played some sounds, like predator sounds in the room. So just a few different things like that that would, that would induce some stress. And then we looked at their gut microbiota, and we were really surprised to see that in the female mice, their gut microbiota looked much more like they'd been on the high-fat diet. So, so, and, and I'm talking about mice that were on the healthy diet. They have mice on the healthy diet, subject to stress, their microbiota changed to look like they'd been on the high-fat diet.
1: And so it wasn't just that different microbes flourished. It was the same ones that were in the bad diet?
2: Yeah, not exactly the same ones, but it was much more like it. So the the ones that tend to increase with the high-fat diet and decrease with the high-fat diet, those same ones tended to increase and decrease in the same ways because of stress. So, Do- and again, it wasn't every single one, but overall, the overall picture of it is shifted to look as if they'd been eating a high-fat diet.
1: Do we know why, I mean, do we have a theory or a knowledge of why this would happen?
2: Um, not at this point. More experiments are needed, but um, it, we could see that it did happen. And one more really interesting thing was that it happened in the female mice, but not the male mice. So that was quite surprising and I think really important because in the past lots of studies have been done only in male mice. And in fact, years ago, um, like a couple of decades ago, clinical studies in humans were mostly done only in men, not in women. And uh, we're learning, which should have been obvious all along, that men and women are different. It also applies in mice. Male and female mice are different. And we can't just assume that something we see in one gender is going to be, it will apply to the other. So, it's an important lesson for scientific studies in general, I think.
1: Just before I go back to the female versus male mice, and just with the idea of what happens in your gut. So, if you have a lot of stress, um, again, I'm just trying to understand what the, what, even if there's a theory of why, because sur- surely you have, you and your colleagues have talked about this and tried to figure out or had some idea of why would, the, why would microbes change? Is it something that, that chemicals that we excrete that might feed them or something else? or is there any thought at all about why this would happen?
2: Yeah, that, that's a reasonable possibility. And you know again, it's just speculation, but it could be that um, when the mites were under stress, there were different chemicals secreted in their bodies that then allowed certain kinds of bacteria to, to grow better than others.
1: Certainly uh, we know that, uh, and I'm going to walk carefully here so I don't step into something that gets me in trouble, but women have different hormones than men do. Do women have different chemicals that when they would be under stress, that would that be a logical then thing to say, well, since it affects women differently, there are things that are, when stress stressors come into their life, there could be different chemicals released?
2: Well, aside from hormones, the other kinds of um, stress you know, what we would consider stress hormones or chemicals like that, they're the same between hmm. men and women, but they're not necessarily going to be present in the same amounts or at the same times or in response to the same signals. So I, I would not expect it to be completely different chemicals, but there could still be differences that are powerful.
1: Are the micro... So when someone eats a heavy, like a, a, a bad diet, again, going back to that, when someone eats a bad diet, clearly part of why they would tend to gain weight would be the fact that they are putting junk into their body and a lot of it would be fat and they can't burn all that off. Do the microbes have any impact on that? When the microbes are in the stomach and they are doing their stuff, does that have any impact on weight gain or is that something entirely different? Yes.
2: No, it definitely does have an impact and this is not from my research. This is from others who have been working in this field for a while Um, but the certain microbes in the gut tend to harvest energy better. So um, the person eats, and one microbiota might harvest more energy, more calories, and help the person absorb more than um, someone who had different bacteria could absorb from that same food. So So it really can make a big difference in in our weight gain.
1: And does that mean then... Uh, sorry, does that mean then that if uh, by this it would sound as though the theory might be that if you are under high stress, even if you're eating a good diet, you could be having trouble with your weight. Would that be a logical thing to follow that if it's the same or very similar microbes that you could be eating very well, but if your life is full of stress, you may have trouble losing weight or keeping your weight down?
2: Yes, exactly. And I think you'll find a lot of people who will share their stories You know, they're, they're just anecdotes, but when you hear it from enough people, you start to wonder, okay, this sounds like something real. And I think a lot of people have had that experience.
1: So what, I mean, what would be the, from your perspective, what would be the end goal of this? Would the idea be, I mean, we all have stress. um, We're never going to be all be able to get rid of all the stress in our life. Uh, Is the idea that if we know that these particular microbes could be fired up or could be flourishing, that there could be a supplement or a medicine or something that we could take? Or is that too simplistic for what the end result of this could all be?
2: Um, I'd say there are two approaches. One would be what you alluded to, just trying to manage stress Right. check. But in addition to that, something my lab's working on going forward is trying to find ways that we can target harmful bacteria and kill just them. Hmm. And that's not a simple thing. Antibiotics kill bacteria, but they do it pretty indiscriminately. And so you lose good and bad bacteria altogether. And that can sometimes create even worse problems. But if we could find ways to target just the harmful bacteria, um, then we could um, open up some ecological space in the gut so that um, probiotics, you know, taking some good bacteria, it would give them a better chance to take hold and really flourish and help us. I mean, I...
1: Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I, 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 when you're describing this, I'm sort of having this vision in my mind of your sort of stomach or gut ecosystem. And I'm wondering, almost like that, if you take something out of the ecosystem, other things get affected. Um, I know that around our house this this summer, for the first time ever, I don't know what has been missing, but we've suddenly got a ton of skunks running around and something has not been around that has allowed the skunk population to flourish. And I'm wondering, that's a terrible example, I know, but if you were to take some of these microbes out of your system, even as you describe it, is there a risk that something else gets thrown out of whack then?
2: Yeah, the the skunk example is a great one, by the way. (laughs) That's not a bad example at all. And yes, you're you're thinking like an ecologist, um, and there is a risk of that. So yeah, we certainly have to think about that. And I think it would also be important if we were able to target harmful bacteria to introduce beneficial. But we're not, not always very good at predicting. You can look around the world at examples where invasive species have come in and taken over because people thought it would be a good idea to introduce that species into a new you know, onto a new continent. And uh yeah, so there there are some good warning examples for us that we ought to keep in mind as we go forward and down this path.
1: Just one thing before I let you go, and and this may not be in your uh, area of expertise, but as you're studying stress, biologically, with microbes, with all these other things, are there positives to stress? Are there any things that we should look at with stress and say, yeah, we have to have a little stress in our life?
2: Uh, You're right, it's not my area, but I have seen other things that say, yes, stress is good for us. You know, if there's no stress at all, we kind of tend to sit still and not do much. So it's not that all stress is bad. It's a matter of kind of managing and and avoiding the kind of stress that overwhelms our system and is and is really harmful. I think we can feel the difference too when we're experiencing it.
1: Well, yeah, I suppose it's um, we only. I think most of us only ever think of how stressed we are when we're at a point when there's too much stress. We don't really even pay attention yeah. to it when there's just a little. So once we experience stress, we go, "Oh man, I'm too stressed out." So. Uh, Dr. Laura Bridgewater from the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Biology at Brigham Young University. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
2: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it.
1: It's a a fascinating study because, a couple things there, but one of them is you could be, according to what she was saying, you could be eating the healthiest diet, you could be exercising, you could be doing almost everything right trying to lose weight and uh, specifically, and I, again, I am only repeating, I'm being the messenger. I'm only repeating what the study says. This is having a larger impact on women. So don't call up saying all the women are gaining weight because of stress, not the guys. But if you are doing everything right, seemingly, but you have a ton of stress in your life, she was saying, and you're trying to lose weight, this could be a huge challenge because the same microbes that are in your gut that are causing you to maintain those fat cells or not burn them off or whatever else Seems very difficult, doesn't it? There's so many things going on and we're finding out new stuff all the time, but yeah, I'm going to eat a high fiber diet with lots of fruit and lots of all and grains and raw nuts and all these things. And then, yeah, but I've got a busy job and I work 15 hours a day and how come I can never lose weight? Well, m- maybe there's an explanation right there. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.